So tonight we're going to continue the exploration of dependent origination because it's such a central teaching to this theme of emptiness. Gil did a beautiful talk on it the other night about the basic um, understanding of dependent origination. That it's a, it's a teaching about the causes and conditions cause and effect nature of uh, our experience. Tonight I want to go into it more detail because I think it's helpful to see what the Buddha was pointing to and what he found important to draw out in this teaching. What I think is wonderful and even actually quite amazing about this teaching, it's kind of a synthesis of the Buddha's teaching. Virtually everything is in there in this wheel of dependent origination. Obviously, the Four Noble Truths uh, uh, are there about the cause of suffering, end of suffering, the aggregates that we've been studying here, you can see represented in there. It's a teaching on karma. Um, It really describes the human experience as the Buddha saw it. And particularly, it points to suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. Again, it's, it's, it's really an explication of the Four Noble Truths. There's a simple four truths. This is really diving into that and seeing everything that goes into making um, that, that understanding. And I think Gil mentioned this quote that's in your study guide 24. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So the Buddha is really pointing to the centrality of this teaching and this understanding um, for him. And you can see, uh, as you explore dependent origination, how it's really the ultimate pointer to emptiness. It shows how everything we experience is just happening out of this causal condition nature of experience. All of these different factors coming together in certain manifestations, resulting in other causes and conditions, and just repeating endlessly, endlessly, if we don't wake up, if we don't see clearly. And it points to there's nothing solid at the center. And especially in its depiction as a circle, that's quite clear, you know. There's really nothing at the center. It's just these factors cycling on, cycling on. And it's at, at its heart, it's a description of how we get caught in suffering. But again, as we've been emphasizing during this week, the Buddha never taught about suffering without teaching about the end of suffering. So even though it's very much a depiction of the, the relentless nature of suffering, the, the um, uh, way that as, as be- beings we can get caught in this cycle of suffering, implicit in this teaching is the end of suffering, is how to break free of this cycle of suffering. So even though in the wheel itself, from ignorance go, you know, goes all the way around to suffering and then to ignorance again, and it seems like it's a circle with no exit, there are lots of exit points, and that's what's important to remember. In my teaching um, the other day, I referred to the quote where the Buddha didn't want to teach because he thought no one would understand, quote 52. And it was really about dependent origination 
that he was talking about. He said, people are too attached. They're too involved. They're too obsessed. They're too deluded. They won't understand. They won't understand dependent origination. They won't see what I'm pointing to. And if I t try to teach, that will just be wearying and vexing for me. But luckily, someone convinced him otherwise, and he did decide to teach, and he taught dependent origination. Um, and it was powerful for a lot of people. And there's another quote in there that I love, quote 53, where Ananda, who was his primary attendant for many years, actually his cousin, but Ananda is often a little bit in the suttas, kind of the fall guy. Um, he's very sweet and endearing. I, I love Ananda. He, he's got so many beautiful qualities, but not the smartest, you know, stick in the bunch kind of thing is, is a little bit his, rep, his reputation um, compared to all of us, you know, a luminary, but in the fields that he was wandering in in the Buddha's time. And he, Ananda comes to the Buddha and said, you know, I really figured this stuff out. Dependent origination is, is really clear to me now. Uh, and the Buddha says, do not say so, Ananda. The, de this dependent origination is as um, deep as this dependent origination, dependent co-arising, and deep is its appearance. It's because of not understanding that this generation is a, like a tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, matted reeds and rushes, and does not go beyond rebirth, beyond the plains of deprivation. So, Fernanda can't quite figure it out. Don't worry if you don't get it from this evening's teaching. It's the Buddha, even the Buddha himself said it was deep and difficult to penetrate. So it can seem complicated. Anytime you have a list that goes beyond about four or five, I find the mind tends to rebel a little in try, you know, just trying to hold it all and figure it out. But as Gil pointed to the other night, its essence is really simple. Cause and effect. There are these causes and these effects. It's, um, and it's all conditioned. Everything is conditioned on this relative plane. And this is really what emptiness is pointing to, the conditioned nature of experience. Nothing solid, nothing permanent, nothing to hold on to, nothing that we should identify with, that's skillful to identify with at the center of this. So it's another way to deconstruct experience. Again, we've talked about this as a skillful way of using our meditation practice to take something that outwardly seems quite solid, seems quite... Um, permanent, seems quite impenetrable, and actually deconstruct it, see its constituent parts, see what's actually happening there. And that gives us these doorways in, it shows us the spaces between things, that we can actually see the true nature that's being revealed there when we break it down. So tonight I want to go through the 12 links, but not in any huge detail. You could do a whole talk on each one and even more than that probably, you know, huge volumes have been written about that. I, I don't want to go into that level of detail here. But just to give an overview and hit the key points, especially about how we wake up, how we break this cycle, and how we can use this for our practice and in our lives. That's the most important thing. So I, I gave you another handout tonight. It's one I've, I've prepared and, and have worked on before that on one side has um, my circle, which is the very roughly drawn one, but on the other side has this 
very complex depiction. And this is actually um, called the Bhava Chakra, the, the Wheel of Life. And I brought in actually a, a, a Tibetan tanka, a little larger, so at some point I'll leave this up for a day or so, you can come and look at it, to see how this has been used as a teaching, um, a, a teaching aid. In the Tibet, for the Tibetans, they've taken this teaching and really graphically represented everything the Buddha was pointed to in this, in this depiction. So I think it's kind of helpful to understand what's going on here to bring this teaching a little more to life. So what's happening in this image, and there are many different images of dependent origination. This one is okay, you know, it's hard to get one that's in black and white that photocopies well but it's got the basic components. And what you're seeing there is this fearsome being with skulls in his hair and t fangs and claws and you know, big fearsome eyes. This is uh, Yama, the Lord of Death. And he's said to be you know, holding all of this, all of existence in these fearsome fangs and claws and teeth. What he's actually holding here, it looks like a depiction of, you know, supposedly all of existence. It's actually a mirror, and it's a mirror that's reflecting what's out there. So I think that's an interesting way to look at this. At the very center of the circle are three animals, um, a, a snake, a pig, and a rooster. And the snake represents aversion, the pig delusion, and the rooster um, greed. Recognize that, anyone? What are they? The kalesas, greed, aversion, delusion, right there at the heart of things. So again, it's a kind of very visual, graphic image of what's being pointed to. In the next circle outside, the, the dark circle, is beings falling down into states of woe, basically into suffering in the hell realms. And then on the left, on the white circle, going up, you know, being, uh, going into states of happiness. And then the next layer, the next ring, are the uh, six realms. In uh, the Theravadan understanding, there's actually 31 different realms, but they've kind of condensed them here into just six. Uh, at 12 o'clock at the very top are what's known as the heaven realms. And again, actually, there's tw 26 levels of Deva and heaven realms, Brahma realms, but they just depict them as one. And in this one, it seems a very California kind of heaven realm because there's something like a hot tub there at the front that they're frolicking around in. I think in some ways, California is kind of like a heaven realm. Over to the right at about 3 o'clock is another heaven realm, but it's an interesting one. It's the realm of the, the jealous gods, the Asuras, and they're always warring with each other, and they even try to war with the devas at times. They're gods, but they're really obsessed with power. They're, they have a lot of skill and, and aptitude, but they use it aggressively. And I always think of politicians when I think of the Asuras, always battling, battling it out. And then on the, still on the top half of the circle over to the left is the human realm. And it's got humans depicted in different, you know, old and and sick and, you know, families. That's the human realm. And it's said that the human realm is the realm that has the best environment to wake up in, the, the, the optimum mixture of happiness and suffering. If you're too much happiness in the heaven realms, you're not motivated to practice. There's too much suffering in the hell realms. Uh, 
you, you're just a, you, so the mind is so contracted and fearful and in pain, you can't practice. So it's this human realm that has the best conditions. Just down from the human realm, about um, eight o'clock on the site on the circle, is the realm of what's called the hungry ghosts. This is actually a very interesting realm. It's a kind of a hell realm. But these hungry ghosts are said to be beings that have just pinholes for mouths and really big stomachs. So they can never get enough. They can never stuff enough in. So they're always wandering about. You can kind of see they're going around like this, trying to find stuff to stuff in. Does that feel like anything you've ever experienced? Never get enough. Not, can't take it in. Want, 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 want more. Over on the right, down from the Asuras, is the realm of the animals, the number of different animals there. And the animal realm, even though you know, I love animals, but the, in the, the Buddhist understanding, it's a it's, um, realm of delusion, of, of, of some, some kind of dullness, sort of a plodding nature. So again, not enough uh, awakeness to wake up, so not a realm that people can wake up in. And then at the bottom is the hell realms. And the Buddha, Buddhism has probably even more hell realms than Christianity, I think. I don't know how many. There's, I saw a book in the teacher room, thir- the 33 hell realms in Buddhism. So all different kinds of hell realms. Not a nice place to be. And you can see in this one, in many tankas, they'll show a Buddha in each one teaching to the realm, teaching appropriate teachings. And the Buddha is often holding something that's appropriate to that realm. So we can kind of see, even though this is meant to be some depiction of reality, we know all these realms. We know the heavenly realms, the hell realms, the realms of the hungry ghosts. We know our animal nature when we have kind of dullness and this sort of uh, plodding kind of experience. And we certainly know the human realm. So they're places that we can all experience. You can think of them as actual, actually psychological uh, representations of the human mind in this depiction. And on the outside are the 12 links, starting at 12 o'clock, and that's what I want to go through next. And if you want to track it a little, quote 55, I put in one of the more complete listings of the um, links. goes through them in one direction, just listing them, and then in a backwards direction, giving more description of each one. So we start at the top with ignorance, and it's usually depicted as a blind man with his walking stick. But ignorance doesn't mean that we're dumb or unintelligent. What does ignorance mean traditionally in Buddhism? What does it mean, ignorance? What are we ignorant of? The Dharma, that's a big one, but a little more specific. Suffering, the three characteristics, the four noble truths. That's, the, that's kind of usually on the top of the list, but there's the three characteristics where we take what's um, impermanent to be permanent, what's unsatisfactory to be satisfactory or a source of lasting happiness. We think there's something solid there. We think what's beautiful, what's unbeautiful to be beautiful. Not understanding karma is another classic definition of um, ignorance or wrong view really someone said not knowing the dharma 
wrong view, holding all of this is wrong view, where we're deluded, we're lost in opinions, holding on to fixed views. Joseph Goldstein, whom, whom I often teach with, he always, he just, whenever it comes up a, a philosophical point about Buddhism, he always just smiles and says, you know, I don't have to know. He said, it's such a relief. And, you know, he's one of the people I most admire, but he's so happy not holding on to a view about Dharma points or philosophies. So it really is that willingness to bring a don't-know mind, not to hold to fixed views. The challenge with delusion is, of course, when we're deluded, we don't know it. That's its very obstacle. It's, it's why it's there at the beginning, because it's out of that that all of the other experiences spring. We don't actually know that we're deluded. And how much do we, um, how much do we act out of that space and not know it? It's kind of like when you're not mindful. I have one friend, teacher, uh, a teacher with Richard Shankman, who, who every retreat I've had, he's, been said, he's said this. He says, what's the instruction for when you're not mindful? What's the instruction? What's a helpful instruction when you're not mindful? There is none, because you're not mindful. You're not, you don't think about it. And it's the same with delusion, you know, when we're lost. It's only more moments of wakefulness, more moments of being mindful, more moments of waking up and being clear and knowing the truth that actually can lead us out of ignorance. But when we're really in ignorance, we're often lost. And just a, a small example, I was on vacation uh, a while ago in Hawaii, and I was staying in a somewhat rural place where um, there's a lot of animal and bird life around, but most of it is non-native. You know, it's a tragedy in Hawaii unless you go up into the mountains. Nearly everything is non-native. And I'm an animal lover and a bird lover, but I'm very aware of this. And there are these birds called francolins that are everywhere. And I don't know if you know francolins. They're a kind of grouse. Ground, ground bird that were brought in so people could hunt them uh, from India. But they have this terrible sound that they make. You know, you think of bird song in Hawaii, well, Franklin's going, <coughs> and in this rising crescendo. And I'm also very, very attuned to sounds. You know, I can hear sounds, very slight sounds. So I'm meditating one morning, and right outside my window, <coughs> And I just got so incensed. It's like, not only shouldn't they be outside my window, they shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be in Hawaii, who brought them. I got so angry. And within moments, you know, I was just been sitting in meditation. I was outside with a pebble in my hand, ready to throw it at these birds. It was only as my hand was raised, I kind of realized, you know, what are you doing here? What is going on? And I could you know, then see this whole construction I had made, this whole becoming out of this sound that I found to be unpleasant. I did shoo them away. I didn't throw a rock at them, but I did shoo them away. But, of course, they lived there. You know, they came back, and the next morning I'm sitting again. And <laughs> but I was able to actually just recognize it's just sound. You know, the wisdom was there that, first time, that second time. But this is where we find ourselves again and again. Contacted a sense door, it's unpleasant. And all of our irritations and agendas and, and ideas about how things should be come up. This is ignorance. This is where we find ourselves so many times. 
It's usually shown at the beginning, even though it's a circle, there's some way in which ignorance is given predominance in this cycle, even though the Buddha actually said you can't find a beginning to ignorance. It's, it's been around so long, which is kind of the sad news. Uh, the next in the, in the chain is sankharas. Now, we've been talking about this one of the aggregates. Volitional formations is usually the translation. But here it's, in, the, in the aggregates, we mainly refer to it as mental. Here it's expanded to thought, word, and deed. And the image that's usually given is a potter, someone making things. And so you get that sense of how we, we create our world through our thoughts, through our feelings and emotions. Is the um, sankara? So we've been talking about this. Here, there is really an emphasis on actions done out of intention. This is willful actions that create karma, and the idea is that the body actions of body have the strongest impact than speech, than thought. Next in the links is consciousness, vinyana. Again, one of the aggregates. It's this knowing of. Contact that arises at the six sense doors. Um, so it's that very, very bare kind of consciousness. And the image is usually of a monkey. And isn't that interesting that they choose? Ever thought of monkey mind? Well, here it is our monkey mind, consciousness at each of the six sense doors, knowing objects. The next in the cycle is Nama Rupa name and form, or mind and materiality. It's usually uh, depicted as a boat with two people in it, kind of sailing along, and it gives this sort of sense of how mind and matter uh, are bonded together. And there's a little similarity here um, with the five aggregates, because in the five aggregates there's form and then the four mental aggregates. Here, nama, name, or, or mental, mentality, and materiality. But I won't go into the differences. They're not synonymous um, to the aggregates, but it really is just a sort of catch-all for both um, form and in the name or the materiality si- kind of thing, it's the orienting aspect of our minds. It it's, um, includes things like... Um, feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. So it's really kind of a, a singling out and an orienting to what we take to be important. Again, you could, we could go into a lot of detail about these and how they work, but mind and matter, basically. And I'll, I'll give my brief gloss on this uh, once we get through. And then the six sense spaces we've been talking about. So there's the image usually of a house with often five windows and a door. And some of the images I've seen, you'll see the monkey peering out from one of the windows. It's kind of like consciousness in, um, within the six sense spaces. Now it starts to get a little more interesting. This is kind of just setting the ground. Then there's the next link, the sixth link, which is contact. Something happens. Something arises at one of the six sense doors. There's some impingement. And the images of a man and a woman embracing. It's kind of one of the strongest sense contacts we can have, or two people embracing that intensity. The Buddha actually said, with contact, the world arises. With the cessation of contact is the cessation of the world. Again, we've been talking about the six sense bases and the totality of everything. It really is. This is our world, these six sense bases. When the six sense bases cease... There's the ending of the world. 
and also pointing you to this possibility of investigating contact, the contact and the knowing of it. Again, in this deconstruction, in this seeing a little more clearly, this can be helpful to uh, really look into what's actually happening here. Out of contact, it said, with every contact that arises, there's the feeling tone, Vedna, again, one of the aggregates we spoke about the other night. Now, the image that's in this tanka, I think it's quite common, is really interesting. So here's the feeling tone. The image is a man with an arrow in his eye. So it's kind of pointing to how dramatic, how important this feeling is, how much it impacts us, how pivotal this part of the chain is. Again, as we said the other day, this pleasant feeling tone, unpleasant feeling tone, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We went through this last time, but just so you remember, what happens when we have a pleasant feeling tone? What happens with an unpleasant feeling tone? What happens with neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Bored, delusion, space out, I heard a few. We need to remember this because this is the central part of this chain. We really need to get that if we're lost in craving or aversion at some previous point, there was this feeling tone and we didn't catch it. We weren't aware of it. So what it goes on to in this depiction is craving. As Even as we call it craving, the Pali word is tanha, to remember that in, even in pushing something away, even in aversion, that's a kind of craving. It's not wanting. So we, we talk a lot about craving, but it includes the not wanting. I think I mentioned this, the Pali word is tanha, which literally means thirst. And it, implicit is it is unquenchable thirst, not being satisfied. Speaking of, <coughs> you know that kind of dry throat that just never, never no matter how much you drink, doesn't feel satisfied. This is what it's pointing to. And the images of a woman pouring a man a cup of tea. These are very traditional images. So, about that. so craving, tanha. Again, we could, we could do a whole retreat on craving, just looking at all of the ways that we crave, that we want, that we lust, the passions. It's the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. What's interesting to see as we break out that um, the Four Noble Truths, it's at this point that more volition tends to come in. There's a, and I like even in the way it's depicted, the downward links, it's more of a sliding. It happens so quickly, these first number of links. Once we get around here, we're actually volitionally choosing, even though we mightn't recognize it, but there's actual intention in these other parts of the cycle as it goes up the other side. And so we're in this process now of wanting, of craving. I found a Calvin cartoon that I just wrote in big letters under it, use for craving, 
you know, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I think that some of the greatest 20th century philosophizing happened in those Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. Calvin the little boy and Co- Hobbes his imaginary tiger. And, you know, they're prancing along. I forget what they're doing in the cartoon. But Calvin is opining, getting is better than having. When you get something, it's new and exciting. When you have something, you take it for granted and it's boring. Hobbes, the voice of reason, says, but everything you get turns into something you have. Calvin, that's why you always need to get new things. Hobbes, I feel like I'm in a stockholder's dream. Calvin, waste and want, that's my motto. It's really the American dream right there, isn't it? You know, every business relies on us having that relationship to things, to experience it. You know, what we have is old hat, we always want new. This is this movement of craving, of always wanting more, and this sense of it never being satisfied, never ending. Next in the links is clinging. And often it's a monkey, but here it's, this, and it's the same monkey that was there in consciousness and the six sense spaces, plucking fruit, sort of getting this big basket and filling it up with, with beautiful fruit. This is the image. And so we move from craving, and it, it's very quick. Most of the time we don't notice it. But craving, we're grasping onto, and the clinging, it becomes mine. We, you know, we're holding onto whatever it is. So it's more solidity. With every link on the chain, there's more solidity coming. So with this craving and clinging, it can be very immediate, you know, being thirsty and, and wanting something to drink or eat or whatever, you know, something more immediate. It can, these can also last for long periods of time. So it's not necessarily happening, oh, craving to cling. We can crave, 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 you know, a new car or some big object, you know, holiday in Guatemala or wherever your ideal is. And you can want that for years until you finally get it. So you need to, you know, see the different time frames that that can be happening here. As I said, with the clinging, it gets a little more solidified, becomes mine. Out of the clinging, the next link is becoming, bawa. In, a, in the text, it's translated as existence, like it's already in. I like actually becoming. It's this sense of solidification where it's moving towards something, not perhaps fully formed, but um, moving towards. And the image is often a pregnant woman. Here, it's actually it's a little hard to see, but it's, a, it's a two people making love, that sense of you know, what, what's there before birth. As we move through this part of the cycle, there's, again, more solidity, more creation of a sense of self, more sense of being, more sense of being someone or something defining what's happening. Again, this can happen so quickly from becoming to birth, could be in a moment, or you can actually see the self taking form in some way or another at this part. You can actually tease it out. Again, interesting to pay attention to. But then inevitably, birth happens. There's a becoming to birth. So the the images of a woman giving birth, and it completes the becoming. It's like now there's really a solid sense of self. Now there's me as whatever I'm born as, whether it's, you know, 
a parent or a child or a brother or a sister or a wife or a partner or a lover or a, a geographer or a teacher or whatever it might be, it's, it's, it's now there and we're distinct. It could be, you know, identities. It could be ways we take ourselves to be sleepy, calm, happy, lazy, irritable. They're all births that we have. And you can see that happening moment after moment. But there's a distinct feeling of being something or someone, inhabiting some reality in some way or another. And immediately, or not immediately, inevitably, after birth, there's death. This is just the truth of things. With every birth, there's inevitably a death. And the, the, the depiction here is old age sickness and death. And, and the depiction is actually a very traditional one. Someone carrying a corpse on their, on their, sh- on their back to the um, funeral pyre. So it's old age, sickness, and death. And it's really a shorthand, or you should say a longhand, for suffering. Um, all of the different impacts of suffering, of grief, of lamentation, of despair, of unsatisfactoriness, of loss, of pain, this is all included in that. And out in this cycle, you can really see it's out of taking form that the suffering happens. It's having something to protect, to identify with, to defend. If there was no solidity there, the suffering wouldn't happen. It's because we've taken birth. It's because we've taken um, form as this solid sense of self that we then need to protect it and defend it and and define it and, and feed it and nourish it. And all of the actions that we have to do to have that go happen, to protect the self, are what causes the suffering. And then because we're so lost in that, we're so immersed in our suffering, even if at sometimes we're not even totally aware it's suffering, we're back in ignorance again. And the whole cycle just continues. And if there's no waking up, if there's no clarity, if there's no understanding, on we go. It's a wheel. It's samsara. This is a depiction of samsara of the relentless nature or cycles of being. So that's just a very quick uh, go-through round of uh, the 12 links. There are different ways of understanding dependent origination. One of the traditional ways that's often talked about in the suttas is over three lifetimes where links one and two, and if you turn your sheet over, um, links one and two, ignorance and volitional formations, are actually in the previous life. They're the, the causes that bring the karmic unfolding into this life. And then links three to 12, consciousness around to becoming uh, this life, and then we take birth in the next life. It's a very traditional view, and it's kind of an explanation of how karma happens and the Buddhist understanding, the Buddhist cosmology of all these different realms and taking birth and how the karma affects that. I actually don't think that's so relevant or helpful for us as practitioners. I think it's interesting whether you believe it or not, but it's certainly there in the suttas. 
what's most helpful for me and what many even scholars will say is to look at this as a moment-to-moment arising. And by that it doesn't mean that every, you know, that every moment there's a new cycle, but that this is moving at a much more rapid pace than that three-lifetime model. And not only that, it's not a single thing. It's not like you know, a wheel that we're rolling along in. There's actually tiny cycles spinning. It's more like a watch, actually, or a grandfather clock. You know, if you open one up and there's all those gears and hubs and there's small ones and large ones and they're going at different speeds, that's more what it's like. All of these different cycles, you know, one that began literally at our birth and is spinning out through this lifetime, and then one that began a moment ago, and it maybe it ends the next moment. So to really see them in all of these different uh, speeds, so it's not going through in a very regular way. Sometimes this cycle goes through very fast, and then it slows down a bit, and we see what's happening. Sometimes the whole thing just whizzes by in a moment and we go through a whole round of ignorance to birth and death and then we wake up. So we need to to be really uh, spacious in how we hold this. What's important to um, know, though, is it's not a causal wheel. What's happening here is each link is conditioning the other. So it's not like... Ignorance causes volitional formations. Sometimes there's a cause and effect, but mainly what's happening, it's a conditioned cycle. So the way you can understand this, and I think Gil mentioned this the other day, you know, when something arises, when something is like this, something else is like that. When, and and uh, there's a Paiuta, venerable Paiuta, a monk, has written a great little book on dependent origination. It's referenced here in the on the references under the circle, um, and you can get it online. He says, when ignorance is like this, volitional formations are like that. When consciousness is like this, mind and body are like that. And again, not necessarily even in a cycle. You could go, when ignorance is like this, contact is like that. So it's not just ticking around. You know, you you could draw lines to each from each one of the links to each of the other one of the links and see how they impact all of the other aspects of the chain. So to keep a, a, a very um, open mind about how this might work, it's not, it's not rigid, it's not just linear, it's working in a lot of different ways. So I drew on the inside of the circle my simplified version of how we can understand and work with this. Because if you look at the, you know, if you go through the sutta and see, you know, within within each of the links, the Buddha usually has two, three, or four, or five, or six things that are constituent parts of that link, and you add all those up, there's hundreds of things he's pointing to here. I've really tried to simplify it. So on the inner circle is my simplified version of dependent origination that only has one, two, three, four kind of links and one event. Hopefully it it explains it a little more directly. I've taken ignorance and volitional formations and seen that that's kind of the past. 
when, you know, talk, I'm talking about when we wake up in a moment or the, here's in this moment of experience, ignorance and our past habits, volitional formations are very much about habits and things that we do out of a, in a conditioned way. We've learnt um, our reactivities. But that's what's been there, you know, and I don't mean the far distant past. I mean just one second ago, one millisecond ago. But there they are there, and they brought us to the effect we have uh, affecting having a human body. And the next three links are basically longhand, for here we are with a mind and a body. The Buddha breaks them out because we can see different ways that they operate, and again, different doorways into this deconstruction. But basically it's saying, everything that's happened, here I am, mind and body. Then there's some contact at one of the six sense doors, or even a few of the six sense doors. Many of the things that happen impact a number of the six sense doors, but something happens. And then there's our response to that. From the feeling tone, the craving, the clinging, and becoming. Then there's a result. So that's a simpler way of looking at this to really understand what's happening. If there's no awareness at that point of contact and feeling tone, the rest kind of becomes inevitable for mo- most of the time. If we wake up, there's actually a chance to change and intervene in the cycle. Now, as I said, some of these cycles are going on all the time. So it's not like you have to just catch that moment of Vedna, and if you miss it, well, you know, you're doomed. You're on the wheel, you know, bound and gagged and heading to suffering. You can wake up anywhere, and because there's multiple cycles going on, you know, there's these chances all the time to wake up. So even, say, taking up the identity of being a meditator here on retreat, or a good meditator, or a Dharma, you know, a Dharma practitioner. So, you know, how many times, even during this retreat, have you had the experience, oh, I think I'm getting this. I understand this. And there's an identity that gets created. And then, you know, the next presentation comes and the mind gets confused. It's like, I don't understand anything. You know, and we, we're just rotating through those. But anywhere we wake up, anywhere we start to bring a realization to, we're just taking up an identity. And the fact that it's been taken up means it can be let go of. As Christina Feldman says, to me the significance of this whole description is that if we understand the way our world is created, we also then can become conscious participants in that creation. We can choose. You know, if we're going to take up identities, which ones do we want to take up? Are they skillful identities? Because we will take them up, but it's really to have them be skillful. And the Thai meditation master, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, he actually calls this the radiant wheel because he said it's not a wheel about suffering. Yes, it is if you are ignorant, if you stay in ignorance, but if you wake up, it's always pointing to how you can actually find freedom. 
So the wheel of understanding, the wheel of awakening. But if we can be there at that place of contact, when the feeling tone arises, it said this whole cycle can come to an end, that we don't have to move in to grasping. This is the key. And to really start to explore in your own experience the Vedana, the feeling tone. What I've come to see, and other teachers point to this, is that if we can be right there with the feeling tone, it in and of itself is neutral. The recognition of the pleasantness and unpleasantness has a neutrality to it. This is really important. It's very subtle. So if it doesn't make sense, don't worry. Nyanaponika says, yet feeling by itself in its primary state is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object as pleasant, unpleasant. This is equanimity. It's registering that it's pleasant or unpleasant, but it's not moved by it. It's not shaken by it. Ajahn Amaro says this feeling tone is innocent because it hasn't yet moved into the grasping, the pushing away. That point in and of itself, so important if we can recognize it. So this is how we can actually shift from every time there's something that's difficult going on that cycle. So a pain in the knee in meditation. Instead of, oh, my knee, oh, it's aching, oh, this is so painful, oh, my knee is breaking, oh, you know, I'll never be able to walk again. It's unpleasant. I don't know about you, but if I can notice the Vedna of that, there's something about the truth of it that the mind just drops a little. The mind just lets go a little. It comes into alignment with the truth, to alignment with the Dhamma. And again, you know, so many stories of yogis, uh, people I've worked with. One woman was noticing so many obsessive thoughts that she was having. Really, and you know, in obsessive thoughts, you can see there's kind of a, a liking of them. We're really, what is this? What is this? She was noticing that they're unpleasant, that just dropped the interest in being obsessed in them. It's like, oh, this is actually not something I want to do. This is unpleasant. So it's interesting, something that you think is pleasant, yet it has this obsessive nature to it, look and see what's actually going on here. And what you can start to see about Vedna is it's conditioned. It's dependent on our current experience, our past experiences, and it can change. And something that was pleasant can become unpleasant and vice versa. Another a student on a retreat, in, in really penetrating into this, just saw, oh, you mean I don't have to do this anymore? Do this dance. She was so, she had a v, VR where she was, you know, falling madly in love with this guy on the retreat who she didn't even know, you know, as, as we do. And, and, you know, as I was working with her and just pointing out the suffering in this, and she was kind of getting, she said, oh, you mean just because I think he's cute and nice, I don't have to do this whole dance of creating, you know, the relationship and the marriage and the breakup. It's like, oh, I can just stop, drop the whole thing. This is what's possible if we're right there. But the important thing is to know we're often not right there. We don't have that mindfulness. Yet this wheel still 
points to us the possibility of letting go. I believe that anywhere that we wake up, we can let go. Whether we've moved beyond feeling tone into craving, we can know that. See its suffering nature. See its conditioned nature and let go. We can move into clinging. Even into the, we can take up a whole identity. And if we know that, if we see how we've done that, if we see how we've constructed that, we can let go. And the important thing is not where we find ourselves on the chain and to beat ourselves up, oh, I missed it and I'm here and it's, you know, I'm, I'm doomed on the, on the wheel of becoming. Anywhere we wake up, we can see with clarity what's happening and we begin to let go. And so we can actually start cultivating what the Buddha called the cessation cycle. And again, it's there at the end of that sutta quote. With the ending of ignorance, there's the ending of volitional formations. With the ending of volitional formations, there's the ending of consciousness. With the ending of consciousness, ending of nama rupa. Anywhere on that chain, it can actually wake up. Ajahn Sumedho, that wonderful monk, who American man who lives in England now, he says, if you start with a vidya, with ignorance, you'll always end up in suffering. But he, this is what he says, I encourage you to start out not from a vidya, but from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself. Rather than a person who who isn't wise, trying to become wise. As long as you hold on to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up in grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful, uncertain, frightened, or even terrified of it. But just begin. Just know and trust this capacity to wake up. We all have the capacity to wake up. So of course it's better if ignorance doesn't arise in the first place. If we're so steeped in the Four Noble Truths, the thought of grasping, who are you trying to kid? Not going there. But wherever it Wherever it appears, whatever happens, we can wake up. This is the Buddha's teaching. This is the great gift of the Dhamma. We don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to track all these 12 links. We don't have to know Nama Rupa and what's contained and and what's actually consciousness. We just have to see, is there suffering here? If there's suffering here, there's some holding on. There's some contraction, there's some identification, there's some solidification. We look and see, and maybe we don't figure all this out, we just let go. We just let go. We just, or let be, as actually is often more appropriate. Zajan Chah says, there's a kind of suffering that leads to more suffering, and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So even if we're in suffering, we can wake up right there and know the end of suffering, know the truth of things, know that even suffering is impermanent 
is conditioned and will cease. So when we're in ignorance, there's a sense of solidity, of permanence, of self, of self and other, of me and mine, I, me and mine. And all of that creates the cycle. If we can actually really train ourselves, really know and learn for ourselves, not out of some idea, but know the truth of impermanence, of, of, of insubstantiality, of not me, not mine, not I. The whole cycle just doesn't even get going. And so it's just noticing, noticing that contraction, noticing that sense of separation, noticing the duality, notice the arising of a sense of self. And we just look and see what's actually there. Come back again and again to what the actual truth is in this moment, really working skillfully with our experience. So it might seem complex, it might seem confusing, but I hope you see that it's just pointing again and again to this possibility of freedom. Deconstructing experience, saying all of these are doorways, possibilities for us to wake up, for us to actually come into our experience and know it directly and kind of have a sense of what might happen if we relate in this way or in that way. Our practice, the Dhamma, is all around creating these choice points, creating this possibility of choosing wisely, choosing kindness, choosing compassion, choosing renunciation, choosing letting go, rather than choosing grasping. We are making choices all the time. The Buddha is just saying, let's make a wise choice. Let's choose the, choose the path that leads to the end of suffering. And we have to choose it again and again and again. The opportunities to get caught are innumerable. So we choose it again and again. We don't get despairing. We don't give up. If we, we get stuck again, we get identified again. There's always another moment to wake up in. And waking up is possible. So I'll finish with the words of the Buddha. For some people, contact, the point where sense plus objects, sense plus object meet, that, that event there in the cycle, that point is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains, breaking the chain of dependent origination. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. In about half an hour for walking, and then we'll have our last sitting with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.